0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 24th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today, a reflection on this year's World Economic Forum in Davos and a conversation with one attendee. Also ahead, a contemplation of what lessons another week of world news has imparted and
1: What good do you think you could get out of working with someone? Uh, I think I should uh, uh
0: A look back at an eventful half a century of Jean-Paul Gaultier. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. The 2020 iteration of the World Economic Forum wraps up in Davos today. The headline attractions of this year's event, US President Donald Trump and Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, came and went fairly early in proceedings, taking some of the world's attention with them. But as listeners who've been following Monocle24's coverage of Davos this week will be aware, there was a great deal more to the event. Well, joining me to reflect on what we can glean from this year's Davos is Monocle 24's executive producer, Tom Edwards. Um, Tom, first of all, you you visited Davos this year. Um, I think most listeners who've never actually been to Davos, either the town or the event, only know of Davos because it does this thing every year. As a place itself, what's it actually like? It's a small Swiss town
2: in the mountains under a great deal of snow. It's very brisk, and there are snipers on rooftops and, <laughs> and in the forest. I didn't uh, see them, that, but I'm uh, assured they're, they're, that, they're that, all around. That distinguishes it right there from other Swiss alpine villages. Um, but it's very interesting. There's obviously a highly efficient Swiss train that uh, takes you up the mountain. If you approach by road, your car is stopped and searched. And if you have, for example, a large consignment of monocle magazines, you know, you're grilled as to what and where. Do you, do you uh, speak
0: from a certain amount of bitter personal <laughs> they're, experience they're here, Tom? Um, but I thought I was struck by what
2: you said, Andrew, that it's um, there was still much to, to, to talk about. Even in my very short visit to the town of Davos, not to within the WEF itself, it was immediately apparent how much goes on. This is a place where people are doing business. Yeah, sure, I think there are a few champagne corks that get popped. You know, there is an elite there from politics, from diplomacy, from big business, but they are there and they are working very, very hard. And that was one of the things that struck me, as well as some changes in tone, which perhaps we can talk about.
0: Well, those changes in tone, are they at all indicative of a certain amount of self-consciousness on the part of attendees at Davos that this is kind of perceived uh, as a bit of a winter jolly for the champagne-slurping global plutocracy? Um, <laughs> nicely put. Andrew Um,
2: I think partly I think there's a small degree of that but what was much more striking was the feeling that this was a time when actually the markets sort of know which way they need to go if we're talking about you know businesses talking about doing the good work or whether they're um, you know Nordic activists or uh, governmental or non-governmental organizations saying look it's time to move on the climate this was the really striking thing. There was a. There's definitely been a change in this fiftieth iteration of Davos, but actually a sea change from maybe just five years ago. Um, one thing that really struck me was the WEF publishes a global risks report uh, just before the event each year. Five years ago, not one of the top five risks for the year ahead was of an environmental in character. In the 2020 edition, all five of the top risks for the year ahead were environmental. Um, and that's very interesting. And that was reflected in conversations that I had and that were going on all around um, what Monaco was doing there. And just generally, it, it, it's, it's no longer something that you can opt into. You can't chase good headlines because you're talking a good game. I even think the idea of greenwashing is gone. Now, companies are realising, and you know, the trustees of pension funds amongst them are realising, if you want to have capital to invest... You need to address these these things. It's mandated in certain quarters here in the UK. I didn't even realise this, but pension fund trustees are obligated to explain how they're going to deliver on ESG principles in, in the longer term. That's part of their responsibility. So it's no longer just about whether you choose to listen. Quite a few people I spoke to said, look, frankly, it doesn't even matter if you're a climate change denier. You can't afford not to address it even if you don't recognise it. Because
0: this is a thing I have wondered about this myself, especially since talking to a few people engaged with this kind of stuff for our our series on the the Rolex laureates, uh, a few of whom did make the point that, uh, again, it almost doesn't matter at this stage whether you think climate change is real or not. That is the way the market is going, and there are fortunes that will be made by the people who figure out how to address this. So did you get a sense that the conversations this year... There was a kind of realisation that even on the grounds of just naked self-interest, it is time to get serious about this stuff. 100%. And
2: there was something else that was more telling to this idea of this being an inflection point. And it does come back, perhaps, to what you mentioned about uh, Greta Thunberg, who who, who stole a lot of headlines. Now, some people actually confided in me that they found her approach, maybe her manner and a certain po-facedness about it, rather dispiriting. However... Virtually everybody I spoke to, particularly people who were in the of working in financial services, they talked about how if it wasn't Greta, it was their own daughter, or mm. this almost sort of this inexorable demand of that next generation. Obviously, you know, the big banks are worried because they're, um, you know, their boomer generation. He said, waving his hand obviously <laughs> around the office, they're not going to be around forever. There's an unprecedented handover of money happening. They have to engage with that. Uh, generation. And I think, weirdly, this is a thing where well-intentioned activists, people with a civic conscience, and frankly, the markets are finally all beginning to point in the same direction. Now, I can imagine listeners throwing their arms up in the air and saying, oh, this guy's just buying into all the spiel he hears. But it really did feel different.
0: Do you think, therefore, because uh, we've discussed this earlier in the week, the, the discussion of whether Davos performs any youthful role uh, is a tradition now almost as firmly established as Davos itself, but... If there is, as you suggest, this new seriousness among both political and business leaders about addressing this kind of thing, is that right there uh, a useful role for, well, not just a conference like Davos, but the Davos conference? Because it does still have that unusual cachet as the place where all these people go and are there at once and able to have uh, informal direct conversations. Well, in short, yes.
2: And in a slightly longer answer, look, you know, we endorse, we advocate the idea of doing business by getting in front of people, meeting them, talking face to face. It's it's just expedient for people who are time poor and yes, maybe cash rich, but you can't hold that against them um, to to chalk up a, a year's worth or five years worth of face to face meetings in in just a few days. And to be honest, whether or not you rate Donald Trump or you disagree and and have no respect for him, you know, I think it's important that he's there and people are listening. I think it's important that the captains of industry, leaders in diplomacy, leaders in policy get together and are challenged and believe you me these people are working incredibly hard and even at some of the sort of more champagne corky events that I <laughs> happen to witness there are a lot of people on the mineral water because they were up at 5 a.m for the next round of bilaterals and breakfast meetings and broadcast appearances and all all the rest people are working hard and I think most of them uh, have their heart in the right place
0: Tom Edwards thank you for joining us you're listening to monocle's house view You're listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. Well, Davos, which we have just been discussing, may be drawing to a close, but Monocle's Augustin Macellari was also there and managed to grab a moment with some of the people shaping this year's agenda. In this interview, he talks to Tristan Harris of the Centre for Humane Technology. While there were those among this year's Davos attendees who were expressing optimism, Tristan was sounding a note of warning.
3: Tristan Harris. I, I, uh, we have a small nonprofit called the Center for Humane Technology that works on reforming the tech industry. Um, before that, I was a design ethicist at Google, studying how do you ethically steer the ant colony of humanity's attention when you have no choice but to do so, and all the things that are going wrong with social media, are what we're trying to sort of fix. So that's
4: why we're here at Davos. How you know th- th- there are various kind of hot issues and it seems like this year perhaps more than ever before there's this real sense of urgency you know this is the year that climate change has to be taken seriously this is the year that the truth needs to be spoken to the big tech companies is this a, is this something that you're picking up on are you are you finding a receptive audience for your message well I, I
3: mean for me this has been the most urgent topic for the last few years and it's a matter of it finally i think being recognized as one of the, the critical ones on the climate change point, I actually believe that you can't actually solve climate change when social media is systematically steering people towards conspiracy theories and denial videos. There is a study showing that 50% of English videos recommended by YouTube, in the top videos, 50% of them were either denial videos or hoaxes. And imagine your new EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and your goal is to do the EU Green New Deal. but. All of Europe is being dosed with basically YouTube as the primary sense-making organ of television, right? And 50% of what is on the airwaves is saying that it's not real. How successful can you be at building consensus when it systematically uh, polarizes people into completely different truth camps? And because the business model is monetizing attention, that means that you're always better off giving people like a Truman show where you're feeding back their own beliefs to them and that automatically means that a personalized newsfeed is more successful for getting attention than a non-personalized newsfeed, which means that taking a democracy and putting it through the paper shredder of Facebook and YouTube automatically, the business model is fragmenting and polarizing societies. Not because any one of those companies wants that to happen, but that's what's true. And so given that's the case, the reason I think it's so urgent is you can't actually get agreement and consensus when everyone's fed their own channel of information.
4: When people talk about Davos, it's often these like macro issues that come up as we've just discussed. I wonder, and I'd be interested to hear your reflections, you know, as you move around these parties, presumably there are a lot of conversations happening that maybe have slightly less headline grabbing agenda setting focuses, but which are important incremental parts of the sort of change that you're kind of arguing in favour of. Is that something that you're picking up on?
3: well, you know, it's, it's very interesting you say that. I mean, I think there's there's a certain argument to be made that our system doesn't work, right? You can't have unfettered capitalism and expect the world not to turn into climate change, depression, opioids, diabetes, et cetera. Those are all natural externalities because it's more profitable to have a person who's diabetic and then, you know, get them on a subscription plan of, of, uh, of prescriptions rather than to have them not be, just be healthy in the first place. Um, and so I think that level of reform is not one that everyone wants to talk about here necessarily, but I, you know, this is my first year at Davos, so I'm, I can't really speak for it, but I, I feel like we're coming at a reckoning with capitalism in the same way that a whale is worth more dead than alive and a tree is worth more as lumber than as a tree. In the attention world of the technology companies, because the business model is monetizing attention, a human being is worth more if they're addicted, outraged, narcissistic, polarized, and disinformed than if they're a human being, and that includes children. Because you're basically, as you know, we said a second ago uh, over drinks, you have an infinite growth paradigm on top of a finite substrate of the human mind's capacity for attention, and we're not, we don't have an abundant supply of that, so we have to sort of get in this aggressive, intensive race to strip mine it out of human beings. So, if anything, one of the reasons why we do what we do at, in our group, the Center for Human Technology, is because I think it's the most obvious form that an extractive, never-ending growth paradigm on top of your own psyche is the most obvious of ways that we can wake up from the fact that this this whole model doesn't work. Now that doesn't mean I'm advocating for socialism, I'm just trying to point out that we cannot keep lying to ourselves and believing that you can have never-ending, unfettered growth paradigm without caring about externalities and omniconsiderate to all balance sheets in the equation.
4: So there's also this sense, uh, criticisms get leveled at the World Economic Forum from, from all directions. One of them is this idea that, you know, here's 3,000 of the world's sort of wealthiest, most powerful people. There's the odd voice of kind of warning like yours, uh, suggesting that maybe the model that has made, put them in the positions that they enjoy, is not sustainable. But there's a real complacency. How conscious of that were you when you came? And how did it kind of, I suppose, how did it calibrate your expectations for the outcomes that you might get here? I totally
3: appreciate the question. Um, There's always the argument that when the populist or activist sort of people show up at events like these, they simply, in the best case, get co-opted and turned into more greenwashing for the perpetuation of a system that's not working. Um, I didn't come here expecting that by convincing a bunch of people that we would just suddenly withdraw lots of power. I mean, the Soviet Union and Gorbachev is one of the few examples where there was a voluntary letting go of power in in a very rare historical moment. Um, I don't think that's how it works. I think movements are built through pressure from the outside, but I think you need a kind of, I mean, we have no time. I mean, if you look at climate change, look at any of these issues, look at democ- the democracy falling apart and the fabric of truth falling apart around the world. So given the urgency, at this point, you need basically everyone, no matter where they are in the system, to be of assistance. So whether you're an oil company or you're at the top of the sort of fossil attention companies of the big tech platforms of surveillance capitalism, you, we need you, like we need everybody to basically put our hand on the steering wheel and turn away from the cliff because that's where it's going. Um, that said, again, I don't come here believing naively that we can simply persuade everybody to do something different, but I think it helps to prime the pump of understanding so that when crisis hits, which it is already hitting in different ways, um, we kind of recognize what wasn't working as opposed to it's a big surprise and then we have to do some kind of financial crisis bailout.
0: That was Augustin Macellari in Davos speaking to Tristan Harris of the Centre for Humane Technology. You're listening to Monocle 24. (music) You're listening to Monocle's House View. Time now for our weekly reflection on what, if anything, the last seven orbits of the sun have taught us. We learned this week that concussions to American soldiers caused by missiles launched from Iran are not that big a deal, at least not according to their commander-in-chief.
1: I heard that they had
4: headaches and a couple of other things, but I would say, uh, and I can report, it is not very serious.
0: President Donald Trump there, who was, of course, precluded from a glorious military career by the cruel and imaginary bone spurs from which he miraculously recovered as soon as the shooting in Vietnam ceased. We also learned, to our more or less complete lack of surprise, that even the shrugging off of injuries to American troops serving abroad is a heresy insufficient to persuade Republican senators to break ranks as Trump's impeachment trial gets
3: underway. What the House managers were proposing yesterday is basically to destroy the institution of the presidency as we know it, make it naked when it comes to partisan impeachment. When it comes to Donald Trump, they're willing to destroy the institution of the office in the name of
0: getting him. You kind of have to believe at this point that Lindsey Graham is actually serious, it being impossible to imagine information compromising enough to induce a man to behave like this. Still, it's always fun to remember the Senator Graham of five years and quite the political journey ago.
3: That he's a jackass. That he's bringing his name down and he's not helping the process and he shouldn't be Commander-in-Chief.
0: Elsewhere, Russian artists learned that the next little while might be rickety going, at least if they were hoping for much in the way of state encouragement, as more was revealed about Russia's new culture minister, Olga Lyubymova. Ms Lubyamova has, it turns out, bequeathed quite the canon of thoughts on her new portfolio over years of online disquisition. She has written that she simply can't stand exhibitions, museums or opera, expressed disdain verging on furious blind loathing for classical music and ballet, and declared that, quote, I don't understand a bloody thing about arthouse cinema. Or, it seems, about deleting old blog posts. We also learned this week that Swedes are at least 4% less airborne than this time a year ago, a globally unusual retreat from the skies. It seems to be at least partially a consequence of what Swedes call flygskam, or flight shame, guilt at the environmental consequences of air travel promoted by prominent Swedes, including environmental campaigner Greta Thunberg. Or maybe it's that Swedes are unusually prescient in noticing that flying is terrible, because airports and planes are full of ghastly people who have no idea how to behave, dressing like teething infants and wearing stupid inflatable pillows, attempting to cram everything they own into the overhead bins, playing games on their phones with the sound turned on, and bringing enough food to supply an expedition to the South Pole aboard a 45-minute flight. Whatever, here is Monocle's transport correspondent Gabriel Lee, speaking from amid the tumbleweed-strewn runways of Stockholm on Monday's
3: Globalist. Swedes are known for being frequent flyers. They love to travel for holiday, for work, you know, and and passenger numbers up until a couple of years ago were steadily rising throughout. So I think really where the airlines are seeing the biggest hit is in these little domestic routes where it is reasonably viable to travel by train. If you look at the fact that some of the numbers quoted are that, you know, a single flight between Stockholm and Gothenburg is equivalent to many thousands of train journeys, it kind of makes sense.
0: We learned that one of Thailand's political parties is not, it turns out, a front organization for the furtive cabal of sinister string pullers which secretly manipulates human affairs for its own enrichment. Thailand's constitutional court cleared one of the country's biggest opposition parties, Future Forward, of accusations that it was seeking to overthrow Thailand's monarchy at the behest of the Illuminati. The 18th century Bavarian drinking club, still feared in foil hatted circles as the hidden hand behind, behind. behind wars, economic upheavals, faked moon landings, and so forth. Future Forward have consistently denied any associations with the Illuminati, but then they would. We learned that while there are obvious drawbacks to life in the all-seeing surveillance state being built by the Chinese Communist Party, China's high-tech panopticon does have its uses in the maintenance of sartorial standards. Officials in Suchao, in Anhui province, released pictures of seven slovenly citizens who were observed going about their business wearing pyjamas. The online shaming, complete with the offenders' names and ID card details, was part of a crackdown on uncivilised behaviour. Unless... and we did work on this for some time it's a counter espionage operation aimed at exposing sleeper cells And we learn, to our considerable surprise, that rebranding a sports team does not have to be, despite mountainous evidence to the contrary, an embarrassing undignified desecration of a noble heritage, and can indeed be pulled off with considerable panache. Let us hear it for the Baseball Club of Florence, Kentucky, currently members of the Frontier League. Previously known as Florence Freedom, they have assumed as their new identity a specifically southern term of endearment, as of next season, they are the Florence Yawls, complete with a quaint nostalgic new logo in the kind of lovely swirling typeface which might once have adorned the tail fin of a preposterous Buick. Florence begin their first season as the Yawls in May at home to the New Jersey Jackals and we wish them all the very best. And with that smashing off the proverbial it out of the park, for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Retiring is not a word which has frequently been associated with Jean-Paul Gaultier during his half-century career in fashion. Another word probably therefore needs to be found, abdication perhaps, for his announcement that his runway show at the Théâtre du Châtelet in Paris of earlier this week would be his last. Well, joining me now to reflect on Gaultier's life and work are Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters, and Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco, both are, of course, clad from head to foot in Gautier Couture, but that's nothing to do with this item. It's just Friday. Um, Jamie, first of all, we were discussing uh, Jean-Paul Gautier earlier this week. It is an extraordinary life and career to try and sum up, but I'm going to ask you to do that anyway.
1: (laughs) Um, I think one of the the major things that he has brought to the industry is a real sense of fun and a sense of humour And he's done everything with this kind of joyfulness that um, can sometimes be missing from the fashion industry. And I think to him, fashion was about a lot more than clothes. It was, he kind of lived and breathed it and in all its different forms. And he loved pop culture and he designed costumes and he... You know, he's just done his fashion freak show, which is like this musical review, and he did all the costumes for that. And he obviously did Madonna's costume very famously, the conical bra. And it was this really unbridled, like not too not po faced look at clothes and how they can shape the body and sort of affect your attitude. And I think I think that, that sense of humour is, is probably his most one of his greatest contributions to the industry.
0: Uh, just to follow that up, Jamie, the, the, the sense of humour that he expressed and exuded was clearly very much him. That's just who we were. And I'll talk to Fernando shortly about some of his extracurricular activities that were a consequence of that. But did it ever, especially when he was establishing himself, tell against him? Did people uh, in a fashion world, which, as you correctly say, is not struggling for people who take themselves seriously, did did people think perhaps the less of what he actually created because he dared give the impression? that he was actually quite
1: enjoying himself. He certainly did court controversy at at different times. I mean, I think he had this kind of interesting background where he came from, started in the fashion establishment and he sort of cut his teeth at um, Pierre Cardin and uh, Jean Patou. So he kind of knew that's the real establishment and he does have this kind of reverence for you know, French traditional sort of couture. He he did that thing of understanding the rules before he broke them. Exactly. And I think that that is key to his success is he can cut an amazing jacket, an amazing suit, but then he can also twist it. And so, yes, I mean, to kind of go back to your question, he when he did a lot of these things, he did, they shocked a lot of audiences. I mean, he was, this was in the seventies, eighties, you know, in the eighties, he put, um, boys, he called one collection boy toys. And he, that was when he put men in skirts. And, um, there were some reviews that, that said it was disgusting. And, you know, if you think like now, I mean, he was so ahead of his time because now, you know, we talk a lot about gender fluidity in the eighties, that was just absolutely outrageous to some people. And, but he, he wasn't doing it to shock. I mean, he was drawing... He, when he explained the collection, he said he was drawing on different cultures. He looked to kilts. He looked to sarongs. He looked to various... It wasn't, like, just for the sake of it. So I think, yes, I mean, part of it was this joyful of not seeing boundaries between things and not kind of seeing people as having to live in a box and look a certain way. Um, but also part of it was... I mean, it, it wasn't... It wasn't doing things just for the sake of it. I think it, there was this kind of line of thought between different things and and analysis of different cultures and and but it ended up being this kind of big pick and mix and it's yeah I don't know it, it really stands out and I think when, especially in the uh, you know in the context of fashion today as well um, he, you don't you sort of don't uh, don't often see that kind of outspokenness and just unbridled kind of joy.
0: Uh, Fernando, how important
5: was that that exuberance, that sense of fun, to the Gautier brand? Well, a, a lot, actually, and, and I mean, of course, he was massively important uh, in the fashion industry, and and perhaps one of the reasons, again, uh, I think it was quite right, your question, if the fashion industry. Thought of in a bit less, perhaps it's because you know he branched out, you know, to popular culture. I mean, the conico Bra of Madonna. He had close relationships with many pop stars, which many of them were actually attending his uh, uh, his last uh, catwalk in Paris. Uh, and of course, he had a classic TV show, uh, Eurotrash, which I loved. I saw as a Amazing. young. Uh,
0: how 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 did you see Eurotrash? Was it shown in Sao Paulo?
5: It was actually there was a channel called Euro Channel with the best of European TV, and I was very young at the time and I said, is that Europe? Oh my God! I need to go and live there. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, it's not as camp and fabulous as I thought it would be. It's still nice. It's still pretty uh, nice. But um, <laughs> I,
0: I don't. I, I feel like we should try and explain Eurotrash to people who didn't see it, Fernando. Because I remember watching it here in the UK on Channel Four because I, I lav- have lived here long enough. But it was presented, if, my, if I recall rightly, by Anton Descon um, and Jean-Paul Gaultier, among others, all reveling in this
5: uh, somewhat lurid. Idea idea of continental culture and and the humor was quite risque i, I even <laughs> i would even dare to say that probably we wouldn't have an eurotrash today because we're very careful with so many things and uh because of their language i'm sure a lot of people would complain uh, i even selected a bit from eurotrash here the one that i could show on air today <laughs> and uh shall we have a listen to it yes please Jean-Paul, will you be my little doggy? Oh yes, my dear Antoine, I would love to be your little doggy. Good. (laughs) So get down on your knees. Mm -hmm. And keep quiet. Uh, that
0: was a clip there, uh, Fernando, from Jean-Paul Gaultier's contribution to Eurotrash. You, you also
5: wanted to play us a clip of something a bit more recent. And I, I need to sell uh, our, our magazine as well because it's of quite course. interesting. Uh, in the latest issue, I had the pleasure to meet Amanda Lear, you know, the iconic disco diva. And it's funny because Jean-Paul Gaultier is mentioned in the interview because she told me he's one of the last kind of French couturiers. You know, that are still kind of working at least uh, mm. when I spoke to her. And she's fabulous. And of course, she had a very close relationship to Jean-Paul Gaultier. She even did a TV ad for one of his fragrances uh, just about a year ago. Again, extremely camp. She was carried by two <laughs> kind of half-naked sailors and and Jean-Paul Gaultier is, is, some, is in something called a Jean-Pod. You know those kind of Alexas or whatever. So instead of the Alexas, she had a Jean-Pod and and he gives everything she wishes. Let's have a listen. Oh.
4: Jean-Pod, allume-toi. Bonjour, Amanda. Je suis crevée. J'ai fait du shopping toute la journée à pied. Bravo, c'est bon pour la santé. Ah oui, peut à pied. Bon, écoute,
5: So she's basically tired because she's been walking around doing some shopping. So he, he sends, <laughs> I mean, he,
1: he. You need to say the. You need. to You, you, the, you, the, need, you do yeah. need to see
5: the ads, but then suddenly she has two half-naked sailors, you know, carrying her around with Jean-Paul Gaultier, giving you know all the wishes she needed. That's but, that's what. It's good about Jean-Paul Gaultier.
0: That is quite a picture you have painted there, Fernando. Um, Jamie, I, I feel a little bit guilty about the fact that it kind of feels like we're doing the poor bloke's obituary here, but he is still very much with us. Do we have any idea what he's going to do next? He doesn't seem like the quiet retirement type.
1: No, and he he said that he'll still saying, stay involved in the industry um, in some way. He, I think he still work, so, um the, the the Jean-Paul Gaultier brand is majority owned by um, Puge, the big luxury Spanish group who are behind a lot, you know, his fragrance has become like, is like one of the powerhouses for his brand. So I think he'll still be involved there in some capacity. And then he's also, I mean, I think he's hinted that he's going to be directing some sort of burlesque shows and things like that, cabaret shows, which seems like right up his alley. And, you know, he's such a large than life personality. He can kind of go into any, any sphere.
0: Jamie Waters and Fernando Augusta Bacheco thank you both for joining us that is all for today's show Monocle's House View was produced by Fernando our studio manager was Christy Evans coming up at twenty hundred, a brand new edition of The Menu with Mark Sippy Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow at 9am London time I'm Andrew Muller thanks very much for listening